I think we should have asked you earlier, Tom. I'm excited. Praise God for what he's doing in your life. So let me now direct our attention to Genesis chapter 29 and uh, chapter 30. And uh, uh, this morning we're going to uh, continue our study of Jacob. We're going to begin in chapter 29, verse 31. You'll find that on page 24 in the Pew Bible. However, just for time's sake, uh, our slides won't uh, match what I'm about to do, but I'm going to just begin uh, the scripture reading, just to shave a couple of minutes, chapter 30 and verse 19, which will be the last few verses we'll consider this morning. So chapter 30, verse uh, 19, please hear now the word of God. And Leah conceived, she bore Jacob a sixth son. Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Our Father, we're thankful for your word in which we can consider uh, somewhat of a challenging, once again, passage, I think. I pray that for special grace, even upon me, as I seek to teach it and apply it to our lives, for us who listen, that we may um, discern what you would teach us from it. We trust it's profitable and good for us, even in its uh, challenge that it presents to us this morning. So uh, we, we ask for your, your guidance, your blessing, even through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on August 7th, 1954, at the British, Vancou- uh, British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada, when two men ran the greatest mile race ever run. It's known as the Miracle Mile. They're going to show you the picture there a little early, but there it is, nevertheless. Um, these are the men who are, are running this race, a uh, British man named Roger Bannister and an Australian man named John Landy. These are the only two men up to this point who had ever run under a four-minute mile. Now, Bannister's strategy, uh, he was going to, that's the, the Bannister is the guy on the right. Um, they both kind of look the same, so that's probably not helpful at all. Uh, Bannister's strategy was to kind of pace himself until the third lap, and then he was going to pour it on. Landy had a totally different strategy. His strategy was to sprint as fast as he could as soon as the gun went and just hope he could hold on to the lead. And so Landy went off and, uh, and he just poured it on. And by the time they got to the third or the fourth lap, Landy's had a very large lead and it was only increasing. And so Bannister was forced to adjust the plan. He said, I can't wait for the fourth lap. I need to give everything I can. And he, he, he began to gain on Landy, and the lead was cut to half, and then to a quarter. And by the time the bell rang for the fourth lap, uh, Bannister was right behind Landy. And yet somehow, even though Landy had been sprinting for three laps, he actually increased his pace on the fourth lap. But so did Bannister as well. And both men are flying around the track, one man on the other's heels. But Bannister could not pass Landy until they made the fourth turn. And they come to that final hundred yards of this mile race. The crowd erupts 
in this thunderous um, cheer, and they are so loud that Landy can no longer hear the footfalls of Bannister behind him. And so he turns slightly to the left, as you see in this statue, and looks. And as he looks, his head to the left, he slightly loses his rhythm. Bannister passes him on the right and wins the miracle mile in record time. If you go to visit Vancouver, you can see this statue. It's a bronze statue of Landy there, looking back with Bannister passing him on the right and recalling this race. Landy would say, when Lot's wife looked back, she was turned into a pillar of salt. When I looked back, I was turned into a pillar of bronze. <laughs> Paul, will, Paul, Paul will talk about the Christian life. You could take that down. Thank you, guys. Paul will talk about the Christian life as a race over and over again, won't he? And one of the most famous places, he offers us this advice in Philippians chapter 3, uh, advice that Landy, would have served Landy well if he heeded it. Uh, forgetting what lies behind, I strain towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. Well, today we are going to consider a counterexample of that. Two women who are not focused on the goal, but rather focused on each other. Missing, I think, in many ways, what God has given them. We're, of course, studying the life of Jacob. We, uh, last time, we saw that Jacob was living in Haran as he has fled from his homicidal brother Esau. He has swindled his brother out of his inheritance. He then deceived his blind father and stole his older brother's blessing, living up to his name Jacob, which means grasper, supplanter, which would come to mean deceiver. He's continually grasping. Just grasping. Maybe if I get a birthright, that will make my life okay. Maybe a blessing. Maybe a wife. And he's always grasping. And God in this process is transforming his life. We call this sanctification. That God is going to show him the frailty of this grasping life. I just need this thing. I just need this thing. I just need this thing. Eventually, we get to really the peak of Jacob's life in Genesis 32 when he grasps hold of God himself. Like literally grabbed God. And would not let go. And this is what, of course, God wanted to teach him all along. And this is, I think, what God wants to teach us in our lives, too. That we need to learn to lay hold of God and his promises. It's a lesson Jacob's wives need to learn. And yes, I said wives, plural. For he has two of them who happen to be sisters. Again, ladies, we covered this a little bit last week, but I don't know. Do you see any potential conflict in your family, right, if your husband is also married to your sister? This, of course, is called polygamy, not not marrying sisters, but marrying two women. Sadly, it's in the Bible, and in every case, it's a disaster. In every single case, it is, just read it. There's no exception to this rule. In every case, it is devastating to women. In every case, it is terrible for children. In every case, the family is ripped apart because of it. It never, ever works. God never, by the way, encourages it. You read the Bible, and he never says, hey, uh, you have a wife. Why don't you go get another? God never says that, okay? That's never God's counsel. We know God's design from Genesis 2 and verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That was God's design I believe, sadly, in our day of what was called, I think, marriage equality, polygamy is just around the corner, 
and it will be devastating to all who are involved in it and even the culture that embraces it. And so here is Jacob. He has two wives who happen to be sisters. Bad idea. Okay? And then he adds two girlfriends. Okay? And the wives are stealing the babies from the girlfriends. Okay? This is a bad family. This, there's a lot of sin going on in this home. And all, all, all four women... Uh, at one point, it seems to me, the chronology is somewhat difficult, but you got four women in your home, all four around are almost pregnant at the same time. Okay, you have 12 kids within seven years. Does that sound stressful to anybody? Okay. Hey, I mean, it's just, uh, just a kind of a troubling home, and what's going to be highlighted is the competition between the two sisters. There's discontentment. There is bitterness towards each other. They're going to use their own, very own children and their surrogate children as an opposition to gloat over the other one. This home is a constant place of turmoil and unhappiness. And so you're going to excuse me this morning. Uh, I hope I'm, I'm not going to put a bow on this story. I've listened to a number of sermons, and this is a beautiful love story, and I don't find anything in it to be beautiful. It's not a love story. It's a tragedy. It is full of sin. I think this is the story of Jacob. Sin, 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 and yet in the midst of that, God continues to work. That his sovereign grace overrules and he begins to uh, fulfill his promises. And as we shall see today, in the midst of terrible sin, he will give birth to the nation of Israel, which will change the world. And so let's begin, first of all, with unloved Leah. A little bit of review for us. I hope that's okay. Look back in chapter 29, verse 31. We read, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah finds herself in a loveless marriage. She is hated by her husband. Now, I don't think this means he's harsh to her. I don't think he's violent to her. He just gives her no mind. He doesn't come home early from work because he wants to be near to her. He doesn't climb into bed and snuggle at night because he wants to be close to her. He doesn't love her. And, and sadly, that's the case of some people. They find themselves in loveless marriages, that they find themselves married to someone who does not love them, that does not want to be married to them, does not want to grow old with them, does not want to speak to them and spend time with them, and that, that marriages are like that, sadly. It's not God's plan, of course. The wife is to be cherished by the husband. The wife is to be nourished by the husband, the Bible tells us. The wife is to be loved by the husband as he loves his own body. The husband is to love her wife. It is a terrible sin not to love your wife. And yet Jacob doesn't seem to care. I wonder if he's learned this from his own home. Remember, daddy loves Esau. Mama loves Jacob. And now Jacob has a family. And Jacob loves Rachel and not Leah And just like his family uh, as a boy, now his family as an adult, it's going to destroy his family. It's going to destroy Jacob's family. In fact, Leah's sons, the sons of the hated wife, will hate Rachel's sons, the sons of the uh, beloved wife. And just like Esau said of Jacob, Leah's kids will say of Rachel's kids, we should kill him. That sin is just going to get passed on. And, of course, Leah is utterly desperate, as we saw last week, trying to win his love through sons. You see there in verse 32, And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, 
For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. I just want to note, uh, I hope discreetly, you have verse 31, Jacob hates Leah. Verse 32, Jacob is sleeping with Leah. Okay? Do you, re- you recognize what's going on? You say, why, why would he be intimate with someone he doesn't love? Because he's a sinner. That's why. Okay? Uh, like many men, I think, are sinners. Like we are, even as uh, Cody led us in a prayer, confessing our sin. Right? Sometimes uh, people in sin are happy to separate intimacy with love. Now, Leah, of course, thinks if I, I'm intimate with him, he'll love me, right? That's what she says. Now my husband will love me. She names him Reuben, look, a son. Because in that culture, bearing a son is one of the greatest things a woman could do for her husband. And so Leah has a son, names him, look, it's a son. Jacob doesn't look. He, he doesn't care. And, and I think uh, Leah has a very painful life. I think it's in, in the Bible for a reason. She, she, in many ways, as we've already seen in her story, she, she, she may have thought, you know, listen, I'm not pretty like my sister Rachel. I'm getting older. I want a husband. And she goes and gets one that doesn't love her. And, and I simply say, if you are unmarried, you, you may aspire for a husband. You may aspire for a wife. That's a good aspiration. But it is better to not have one than to have one who does not love you. And so please be very deliberate. Do not get in the point of desperation where you just take anything, anyone that says yes, because you're so desperate to be in that relationship. It does not work. Yes, get a husband, but get one who loves you. Well, he doesn't love her. Well, she's going to try again. As you know, verse 33, she conceived and bore uh, uh, conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated... He has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Simeon means hearing. The Lord has heard me, heard my prayers. She's pouring out her heart to God. Please cause my husband to love me. Please make him love me. It's not working. She tries again, verse 34. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Levi means attached says, okay, well, it's my third son. At least he'll be attached to me. I don't, perhaps I'm uh, misreading this, but it seems like she's lowering the bar, right? I want him to love me. Will he love me? Now she gets a point. I just want him to stick around. I just want him to be attached to me. If I have a son, at least he'll stay with me. That may have been the case in this culture. Sadly, it seems not to be the case in our culture anymore. When 40% of American children today go to sleep in a home without their biological father. Two out of five. It is astonishing to me that, that it seems men are constantly running out on their children and their families. She's desperate that this doesn't happen. And so she says, I just hope he stays attached to me. I just want him to love me. But he does not love her. But you know who does? God does. And we saw that in verse 31, did we not? When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... God began to bless her. And again, this is somewhat review, but I think it's helpful for us that God loves us in the midst of our hardship, even when our hardship is uh, the result of our own sin. She tricked this man by going to bed with him, right? She entrapped him in a marriage that he never wanted to be in. 
right? She is in many ways responsible for her situation, and we therefore want to withhold sympathy from her because it's her own folly that has led to this mess. She's getting what she deserves, we might say, and yet God is so much unlike us because he gives mercy to those who in sin destroy their lives. Years later, there's going to be another woman whose life is all messed up by sin. She goes to a group of religious men, and almost every one of them says, get her out of here. She's disgusting. She's filthy. She's gross. We want nothing to do with her except one of those religious men. You know his name. It is Jesus. And he looked at her, and he forgave her sin and declared, I tell you, though her sins are many, she is forgiven. And my Christian brother and sister, the same is said of you and I. Though our sins are many, we are forgiven. This is what God offers to all who would receive it. He does not give us what we deserve. Instead, he gives us grace and love if we will take it. You say, Leah doesn't deserve any blessings. Yeah, right, any more than you deserve God's forgiveness, and he gives it anyway. And by the way, what blessings does he give? Notice he doesn't change Jacob's attitude, but he gives her the honor of bearing these children. And a very special one indeed, as you read in verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son this, uh, and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Judah. So three times now she says, I hope my husband will love me, cause my husband to love me, cause my husband to love me. And then finally she says, forget it. I'm just going to thank God for my kids. I'm going to praise God. He's given me three boys. My boys love me. I praise God for them. And so she is responding to the midst of her painful circumstances by turning to the Lord in faith. Her, notice, her bad situation has not changed at all. What's changed? She has. God is giving her grace to live in a very difficult home. And if she could see how God is going to use two of these boys in particular, Levi will give rise to the priesthood, which will give rise to Moses and Aaron. Judah will give rise to the the kingly line, giving us David and Solomon and eventually leading to Jesus. You may not have a husband who loves you, but you get to be the ancestral mother of the Messiah. That's a pretty good consolation prize, don't you think? That is grace that God gives her. And then notice what happens there in verse 35. Then she ceased bearing children. We're not sure why. It is not said that she is barren. Verse 31, we read Rachel's barren. Here in verse 35, we just say Leah stopped having kids. I wonder if she thought, listen, buddy, if you don't love me, then uh, I'm done with you. Moving on. And she stopped visiting her husband's tent. Well, you see, she's not the only woman who's struggling in this home, as you consider, secondly, discontent Rachel. Discontent Rachel. Look in chapter 30 and verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Now, Rachel, of course, has the favored position, right? She's the loved wife, and yet she's every bit as miserable as Leah. Jacob loves her, but his love is not enough for her. In this culture, as you know, bearing children was very important. Rachel can't bear children. Her sister, who's also married to her husband, uh, happens to be giving children to her husband, and she is very insecure about this. 
And then her insecurity is seen in this outrageous statement. Read on to verse 1. She said to, her, to Jacob, give me children or I die. Give me kids or I just want to end my life. You could hear the dismay there. You could hear the fear there. You could hear the sadness in her heart. Of course, Jacob, uh, notice his tender and caring response there in verse 2. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Not, hey baby, let's pray about this. Not, let's get away for a couple days and we could talk about this. Not, I bought you flowers. Not, 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 not um, you know, I, I love you regardless. What, what does he, he say to her? He says, look, I got kids everywhere. So the problem's clearly not me. It's you. And so you go pester God about it. Stop pestering me. Take it up with God. Now, you remember his mama, Rebecca, couldn't have kids. And his, she came to her daddy and his daddy in great dismay, Isaac, and said, I can't have kids. And what did Isaac do? You remember? He wrapped his arms around Rebecca and he began to pray for her. God, we want kids so much and we can't have kids. Will you please bless us with children? And, 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 and that's how Jacob came to be. That's how we got to Jacob. And now Jacob is also in a, a marriage with a barren woman. He doesn't seem to care about leading his home in the slightest bit. And, and Jacob has utter failure in his leadership, and Rachel is uh, equally failing in her discontentment. In fact, both ladies are discontent. You notice that Rachel has the love of Jacob, but not children, and therefore is miserable. Leah has children, but not the love of her husband, and therefore is miserable. Both, both, both are discontent. Both are focusing, in other words, on, on, not on the blessings in which God has given them, but the lack of blessings. They're focusing on the areas uh, of, of their wants rather than the areas in which they have received. And therefore, they, this great discontentment is rising in their heart. Um, and, and this is, uh, you see this, this, I think this is universal to humans. I think we all fight with discontentment. You see it very clearly in children. Right, you got a kid playing with a toy and totally happy, totally satisfied until what happens? There's another kid with another toy. And then the kid like erupts like a volcano. It turns red in the face. There's screaming and there's spitting and all sorts of craziness. Why? Because I got, want that toy now. It was totally satisfied beforehand, but now no longer. Now us adults, we're, a little, we're able to hide it a little bit better, aren't we? Yeah, but we still struggle with this. In fact, Paul would write in the book of Romans that we are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And I think it's easy, one of those is easier than the other. Right? It's, e- it's easier, isn't it, to feel sympathy for those who are worse off than you? How about feeling joy for those who are better off than you? Man, I am so joyful that you got a raise. I'm so happy that you're getting these blessings. Right? These, these girls don't feel any of this, and I think quite often we don't as well. Right? I think we're often preoccupied not with enjoying what God has ha- given us, but what we don't have. As I said, I think this is a universal problem. I don't, I, I, you know, it's, it's the, the car you have, or maybe if it's not the car that, that you're discontent with, it's the boss, it's the house. We're constantly discontent with the weather, it seems like, right? We're always whining about it. it's just not good enough. Maybe the, maybe the church service, we're discontent with the songs we sing. Certainly you're going to be discontent with the length of this service today. I'll tell you already right now, okay? 
That's why we have high consumer debt as a culture, right? We want more than we can afford. It's why we have this outrageous divorce rate as a culture. The marriage is not happy, so we go on and, and look for another one. We're constantly looking for more. I want more, and I want more, and I want more. We live lives of discontentment. Perhaps you heard that two teardrops were once flowing down the river of life. One teardrop said to the other, who are you? The teardrop answered, I am a teardrop from a girl who loved a man and lost him. Who are you? I'm the teardrop from the girl who got him, was the answer. That's how we live. It doesn't matter what we have. We are quite often upset about it. We're discontent with the situations in our life. And it's really, I think, a a symptom of a more insidious disease called ingratitude. Ingratitude. Discontentment exposes a lack of thankfulness to God. We become so preoccupied with what we don't have that actually suffocates our ability to thank God for what we do have. And so we forget that we were blind and now we see. We forget that we were dead and now have been made alive in Christ. We forget that we have been forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future. We forget that we were orphans and have been adopted into God's family by his grace. We forget that we are paupers and are now are heirs of the world. What we're really frustrated at is our TV is too small. Or I want a better job. Or I want a different spouse. Yeah, 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 thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and all that business, but what I really want is this. Discontentment means that who God is and what he has done for you is not enough, and he is therefore not worthy of your thanks. If you are discontent, therefore, that is a sin you should repent of. You should seek contentment that is found in Christ. This will be something you will have to labor at, work at. This is not something that comes automatically. Contentment's not attached to salvation. Contentment is a skill that we hone through practice. It's something that grows over time. Paul will teach us this in the book of Philippians. So you're not going to get contentment from this sermon. You get it by living, by laboring, by fighting for it. You wage a war against the temptation in your heart to complain or to envy or to focus on what's inconvenient. And instead, you focus on trusting in God. You put your faith in him. As one pastor put it, contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and be at his disposal. That's my ambition That should be is for the Father to have his way in me, to be at his disposal. What was it that Mary said when she got very difficult news from the angel? Behold, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. This is glad submission the Christian is to have, the yielded heart that we are to have. Sadly, Rachel did not have it. And so she hatches a very familiar scheme to us. Sadly, it's a familiar scheme. It shouldn't be. But you see in verse 3, then she said, here's my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf and and even I may have children through her. And so she gave her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went in to her. Sleep with my servant. Now how desperate must this woman be at this point? To shove another woman into her husband's bed. And I imagine Rachel growing up once dreamed of the monogamous love of her husband-to-be. And that got messed up by her dad, Laban. And now she is tossing him aside. 
in order to what? Why? Why is she doing that? So she can compete with her sister with, the, the, with having babies. In fact, I don't think this is simply it's sad, isn't it? It's pathetic, but it's more than that. It's evil, right? Does anyone ask Bilhah? Right? Is she now in a relationship with Jacob? We have no biblical evidence that there's ever a relationship between those two individuals other than sexual. That's it. She's a baby machine. In fact, she doesn't say, now sleep with, uh, sleep with my servant, perhaps you'll get a child through her. She says, sleep with my servant so that I can get a child through her. So Bilhah's child will become my child. She's my property, and her child will be my property too. Here you go. Jacob's response, all right, all right. Okay. you want me to sleep with another woman? All right, baby, I love you so much, I'm willing to do whatever you ask. And so there, off he goes, and babies start coming. And you can see Rachel's, names, uh, Rachel's heart in their names. Look in verse 5. Uh, then Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son, and Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Dan means vindication. In other words, thank you, God. My plan is working. I'm vindicated. I'm going to name my boy Vindication. So she's sinning, and she's blame, giving God the credit for it. Right? Look what God is doing. And her motives become even more clear, as you see in verse, uh, verse 7. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and have prevailed, so she called his name Naphtali. Naphtali means my struggle. And so she is delighting. Why? Because in her struggle with whom? Her sister, she is catching up. This is like Jacob and Esau all over again, right? I mean, just the fighting between the siblings. I just want to get one up over my sister. And so she gets Naphtali, and she says, I've won. I've prevailed. It's like she's doing a touchdown dance with her baby, right? Look at me. I've scored on, on my sister. And evidently, Rachel's not very good at math because two is not greater than four. Okay? But, uh, but evidently, Leah's not very good at math either because she starts to panic. And so she does this exact same thing as we consider thirdly struggling Leah, as you see in verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children... She took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then uh, Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Okay? And so here, here, here Le- Leah's not going to lose. Right? She has a servant too. You know what this family needs? More women, right? right? Yep. So let's throw another one in there. It's almost like she's calling down to the bullpen. Okay, let's, She's catching up. We just bring, bring in another. And so they have this son. And uh, notice the name in verse 11, and, and Leah said, good fortune has come, so she called his name Gad. Gad. Gad means good luck. That's like naming your kid Vegas, okay? okay? Or Lotto. Right? Right? Ra- Ra- Rachel's blaming God for her sin. Leah's saying God has nothing to do with it. It's all luck at this point. Uh, she is struggling, isn't she? And uh, here comes another one. Uh, verse 12, Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called uh, me happy. So she called his name Asher. Asher means happy. Why is she happy? She has another kid? 
No, she's happy because she's maintaining her lead on her sister. And you could almost hear her neurotic glee that another son has come. I'm so happy, she says, other, uh, 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 as another woman is, is in her husband's bed. And the, the siv- sibling rivalry is just utterly outrageous and uh, absurd, isn't it? It reminds me of Cain and Abel going at it. In fact, one author spoke of them saying, Cain looked over at Abel and no longer sees his brother. All he sees is a rival and someone to, not someone to love and lift up, but someone who needs to be cut down to size. Who does Abel think he is? Where does he get on? As a poisonous little fire is eating in Cain's inwards. I think this is what, exactly what's happening in these uh, sisters. And, and of course, you remember, we let, last time we left Leah, we left her on the high note. Remember? I just want to praise, uh, praise God when she had Judah. And now, she's, a couple years later, she's lost her way, hasn't she? She's wandered off, as Bunyan might say, in, in Bypath Meadow. And what we see, what the Scripture is going to tell us, shows this over and over again, especially in this family, is that spiritual growth is never a straight line. I think the Bible is just unbelievably honest as it lays out the sin. It's never just continuing to grow towards the Lord. Sadly, there is a, quite a number of dips as we see uh, Leah now fall, walking away a, a bit from the Lord. And in fact, when she was first, what was she preoccupied with? I just want my husband's love. I just want my husband's love. She clearly doesn't care about that. She's moved beyond that. But now somehow she's caught up in this competition with her sister. I just need to beat my sister. I just need to have more kids than my sister. It's like a, it's like a poker game. It's like Hebrew hold'em. Right? I bid one wife and four kids, and well, I'll match your wife and raise you a girlfriend and two kids. Well, I'll raise your, your girl, another girlfriend and two more kids. And what's Jacob doing the whole time? Nothing. Is he, is he complaining? No, he's just going along for the ride. He has totally lost control of his family, and it is explicitly clear in the next verses, as you see in verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Reuben, at this point, we think is about four or five years old. Little Reuben, he arrives at home with mandrakes. A mandrake is a flower. That has a long root that looks like a man, hence the name mandrake. The flower will bloom, and it will produce a fruit. Some people suggest it tastes like an apple, others a plum. And so Reuben is out, he's picking apples for his mama, Leah. She get, he comes home with an armful of apples, and Rachel wants them. As you see, read on in verse 14. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. So Rachel says, I want those apples. Look at Leah's response, verse 15. But Leah said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes? Okay? You took my husband, and now you want my apples? Right? Are you serious? Is that weird to anybody? Of course, Rachel might, might come and say to her, I'm sorry, I took your husband? You mean the one you slept with on my wedding night? That's the husband we're talking about? It's like they're five-year-old girls squabbling over the, a, a doll. And eventually they come to an agreement, which is just even more weird. As you read on in verse uh, 15, Rachel said, then he, um, uh, she says, would you, would you take my son's mandrakes? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So she says, 
okay, I'll give you the apples if I could sleep with, with my husband. And she says, okay, I really like apples. That sounds like a fair trade to me. Okay? And, and it just, again, it seems like uh, Jacob's is, is, not, is not in control. His bedroom is so busy that you have to get on the calendar, evidently. And Rachel's in control. And so she says to her sister, her sister the sister wife, I guess, in many ways, she says, I'll schedule you in, right? If you kick in some apples, um, I'll put you on the schedule. And now what, what's the deal with these, these mandrakes? Well, they thought they were a fertility drug. And so Rachel's thinking, that's what I need. I can't have a kid. I, all I need is to eat some mandrakes. And so give, give me those apples, and everything will be okay for me. You'll see it doesn't work out at all. But then uh, things are just bizarre. You read verse 16. When Jacob came from, uh, in from the fields in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Okay? You, we're, uh, we're, we're, you, you, you have to come into my tent tonight. I paid for you with apples. Right? I hired you. As if he's, at this point, uh, it seems to be some type of male prostitute. It's like, okay, I paid my wages, and now you need to come in. Jacob's response, uh, that sounds fair to me, okay? Um, and so uh, off he goes. The mandrakes clearly don't work. Uh, Rachel's not bearing children, but Leah is, as you see in verse 17. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. Okay. Um, uh, in fact, and then she named him, excuse me, so verse 18, so she called his name Issachar. Issachar means wages. That's what his name means. In, in other words, uh, his name will always remind us that Leah paid wages with apples so that she could be with her husband in order that uh, she could have Issachar. And, and I'm not sure Issachar would have actually been very thankful for that name, that reminder that this is what happened. You think Jacob at this point would have said, no, we're not naming our son wages. It's not going to happen. But clearly he, he does not and uh, doesn't seem to mind at all. And then how about another son? Uh, verse 19, Leah conceived and bore uh, Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Zebulun means honor. Uh, she's not saying that, that she wants to honor God, sadly. She's now once again uh, back to, I just want my husband to love me. And now my husband will honor me uh, because I've given him six sons. Then we have this passing note, uh, verse 21. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Right? Finally a girl. Right? A little princess in the house. Praise God. Everybody's excited. No, it just seems overlooked. Oh, by the way, there's Dinah. There's no celebration, no explanation, no, no praise God. She's just uh, not regarded well at all, it seems. Her name means justice, which will be prophetic, uh, sadly, when we get to Genesis 34. So what's going on here? This, this is called idolatry. An idol is something, usually something good, something wonderful. Children, husband, career, right? That, that you, you need in order to be happy. And it becomes a false god in your life. Okay? It becomes controlling. The, the idol determines your joy, determines your anxiety, de- determines your identity. 
And the idolatry is very clearly seen in these babies. I mean, just think about the names. I'm vindicated. I prevailed. Wages. We have good luck. Finally, I'm happy. Now he'll honor me. Right? And, and, and they're just investing all their hopes in these children. And you think, will anything turn them around? Well, praise God, yes. For we end on a happy note. And I'm sure you're relieved as we get there in verse 22. As we think about remembered Rachel. Look what the Bible says. Then God remembered Rachel. He remembered Rachel. God hadn't forgot her. He's just waiting for her to call upon him. In fact, look what it says there in verse 22. And God listened to her and opened her womb. So finally she's prayed. She stops yelling at her husband, stops scheming with this girlfriend, stops the love potions, stops selling intimacy, stops celebrating and gloating, and instead she prays. She, She decides to ask God for a baby. And what does God do? He gives her a baby. You, you want a baby? Some of you would like to have a baby, maybe. I, I, that'd be one. I'll take another one. What the heck? Right? You want a baby? Some of you hope one day to have a baby. Maybe you're trying to have a baby. Well, don't, don't start praying once the fertility issues come about. Start from the very beginning. Don't, don't wait till the ninth inning and you're down by six to think, okay, maybe we should ask God about this. Right? You start, God, we're excited to grow our family. We, we, we believe you give children. May we have a child too. You see, God gives babies, and sometimes through natural processes, sometimes even in infertility, we see this over and over again in Scripture that God opens the womb. Sometimes God gives babies through adoption. And I'm so thankful that we are in a church that have uh, been blessed. So many families have been blessed through adoption. I think there's at least 10, 12 families in our church that have uh, grown their family or completed their family through adoption. And God, God does this. God, God gives us babies in many different ways. Sometimes through a child that's born to you. Sometimes through a child that is rescued by you. And may I just take a moment and commend that ministry to you, the ministry of adoption or one of our many different ministries we have in caring for orphans locally. Right? God doesn't always bless in the ways we see, but God does bless. And I do want you to know if this is ever something in your mind that our church actually has money set aside in an account to help pay for members of this church to adopt children. We don't want finances to get in the way of what God is calling you to do. And so I think God gives children. I think this is clear. And, of course, he gives uh, Rachel a child by opening her wombs. You see in verse 23, she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. My reproach. Thankful of the name she gives him in verse 24. And, God call, and she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. She doesn't name him vindication. She doesn't name him finally. She doesn't name him home run or lotto or whatever it is. She names him Joseph, which means may he add another. It's almost as if Rachel's saying, I love him so much. God, may I have another, please. And she will, as you know. She'll have a boy named Benjamin, which will make how many? Anybody counting? It's 12 sons. And those 12 sons will make a glorious nation. All out of God's grace. 
It, it is astonishing to me that these girls are waging this baby battle, if you will, and God is at work even in the midst of it, doing much more than they even imagined. Out of jealousy and strife, out of polygamy and idolatry, out of ingratitude and discontentment, God is bringing the, the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And maybe if you came in today and and I told you, listen, we're going to talk about the origins of the 12 tribes of Israel that would go on to change the world, you might not have expected this story. Because once again, we see that God is working through sinful people to accomplish his, His plans, to keep His promises, to bring about His redemption through sovereign and overruling grace. And it is somewhat astonishing to me in light of this passage, we get to the end of the Bible and we read in the book of Revelation that there is a city of God where God will be forever on the new earth and you and I as Christians shall live there and we will enter into that city in order to be with God. But in order to get into that city, we will enter through one of 12 gates. The name on those gates is what? The names of these 12 boys. And so we're going to enter the holy city and we're going to pass through the Gad gate or the Asher gate or the Reuben gate. Now my question is, how do we go from a perverted man, two wives, one he hates, plus two girlfriends who he seems to have no relationship at all. The two wives are using their servants and their own children in bitter conflict with one another. And the 12 sons, by the way, will be no better than their dad or their mother's. And for all eternity, these gates are marked in their honor in order that we might worship the God of Jacob. How is that possible? Why would God do that? Well, one word. It's grace. It is God's grace. These people are petty and foolish and perverted and bitter and immoral and scheming and angry and lazy and ungrateful and spiteful and cruel. They are not our heroes. They do not wear capes. These are not the people that the Bible says, hey, be like them. They are full of sin, just like you and me. We we need grace. They are examples to us of God's grace. They are trophies of God's grace. God says, you want to see how incredible I am? Look what I could do through a family like this. And so when we pass through the Issachar gate or the Naphtali gate on our way to see our Savior, we will not look up and think, wow, that Naphtali, that was a great guy. No. You're going to think, Naphtali? What a great God. A God with overflowing grace. I hope you've received that grace. He sent his son in this world to offer it to us. You can confess your sin to him even now, this very moment in your heart. Ask God to save you and to cleanse you through the one that bears the name that is above all names. The greatest name, the Lord Jesus. In fact, when Mary was told of his name, we're told in Scripture that you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus means Savior. God saves. He is a grace bringer. And Mary is so elated that she gets to give birth to the Messiah that she actually sings a song. And in her song, believe it or not, she borrows from Leah. She sings, from now on, all people will call me happy. All people will call me blessed. 
Just as Leah said when she had Asher. And I think in many ways that's our song too. Because of Jesus, from now on, no matter what happens in in our lives, if we are in Christ, from now on all people will call us blessed because we have Jesus. Because we have Jesus, we can lay down our strife, lay down our grasping, lay down our clamoring and our discontentment. Stop demanding, give me this or I die. Give me this or I won't be happy. Give me this or I'm going to whine and complain all the day long. No, we have Jesus. And that we might say, therefore I want to praise the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for Christ. That he can work and overflow with grace. He is a great and gracious God. And we have received that grace. And one of the examples of grace we see here in Scripture. That you um, are abundant in your mercy. That you work through sin and sinners. And so that gives us hope that you might even work in us and through us. That we too might be used by you to build your kingdom. And so we're thankful. So we are reminded once again that we do not earn our place in your presence. But that you have been gracious to us. Gracious to us in saving us. Gracious to us in the lives you've given us. Even though they're not perfect, you are blessing us all the time. And so we pray, Father, that we would be filled with contentment. We would, as Paul said, learn the secret of contentment. That we might trust in you as we walk in faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.